0: to the best of Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream the program. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Always a good time. So tonight we're going to do something a little different than what we usually do here on Closing Argument. Usually we do uh, what all conservative talk radio does, and that's kick around the headlines of the day, and in this case being a Monday night, the headlines from the weekend, and give you our analysis of what's going on in the world, good, bad, and ugly. We're going to depart from that this evening, and we're going to take you through what I hope will be fun, enlightening, entertaining. That's what I try to bring to the program each and every night. We're going to take you through the program's standing rules. I have these rules. There were seven of them. I made eight because we have eight segments, right? So I want to give each rule a whole segment to explore. These standing rules that I use to kind of guide the direction of the program or to, to sort of encapsulate the principles and the general philosophy that I bring to the analysis of the headlines each and every day. And some of these are more serious than others. We're going to start off with one that is a little less serious than the other seven. Uh, You've heard it before. You've heard it many times. Standing rule number one here on Closing Argument, any single time, let me quote it directly here. Let me get it in front of me. Literally any time a caller wants to complain about bicyclists, they go to the top of the queue here on Closing Argument. So if you're out there, and uh, you've had an anecdote, a personal experience, a tragic encounter with a rabid bicyclist out there on, particularly in the streets of downtown Minneapolis or the broader metro. Feel free to call in anytime to let us know all about it. And I want to spend this first segment kind of exploring this a little bit. And, and again, I assure you, we'll get to the more, the more. Yeah, although I should say, I was what I was about to disclaim there is that we'll get to the more serious, more political rules uh, as we move forward in the show. But this really is, when you explore deep down to its root, this is a political issue, this issue of bicyclists uh, in in a variety of ways. Let me start by taking you back to, let's say, uh, 1980, what, four, five, somewhere in there. When I was a kid, and I'm talking single digits, seven, eight in that zone, it's not like I have an inherent issue with bicycles or, or bicyclists, or traveling on bike, or what have you. I loved my bicycle when I was a kid. I own a bicycle now. I don't get to ride it as often as I would like to, just don't have the time, don't have the the uh, opportunity. And I've got two young kids, one of whom is just getting around to being able to, to get on a bike with training wheels. Still isn't quite up to speed, so the idea that we're all going to get on bikes and ride around together is still maybe a year or two out. But I look forward to that day. I look forward to being able to get up on a bike and ride around the neighborhood and and explore at a slower speed and smell the proverbial flower, so to speak. It's not that I have a problem with bicycles. The problem that I have is the direction that the culture has gone in terms of how we relate to bicycles and how, how bicycles are integrated in with the rest of traffic, and, and what that has to what that implies, you know, all, all the political and philosophical issues that are tied into that. So, you know, on its surface, it's kind of this jokey rule we have on the program, right, about how much I how annoyed I am by bicyclists. But it really does go to something that's much more deeper than just annoyance with a particular bicyclist, you know, cutting me off in traffic or endangering himself or potentially damaging my vehicle or har- harming others, whatever the case may be. It's, it's a lot of the cultural means that inform the current state of bicycling in our culture. When I was a kid, and you know, if you're my age or older, when you were a kid, bicycling, and I, this is probably, I assume, is still the case today, a, a kid's bike is the equivalent of an adult's car. It is your means of getting around. If you want to be able to get somewhere in your neighborhood and, and you want to get there in a timely manner and you don't have a driver's license, your bike is your best bet. And so, you know, in that sense, it's something we, we all look back on. We all remember what it was like, how important it was to us personally to have our bicycle and to be able to use it, to be able to, to access the roadways, the sidewalks, what have you. But when I was a kid, and if you're my age or older, when you were a kid, the, there was a certain set of rules of thumb. Like this way, to my knowledge, I I didn't flip through a book of statutes when I was seven years old, all right? I didn't know what the actual laws were that applied to being on a bicycle. But I had a sense of the rules of thumb in terms of what it was you were supposed to do, what was expected of you as a bicyclist when you were on the road or near the road. Generally speaking, the expectation was if there's vehicle traffic, if there's motorized traffic... You yield, period, period. And this was the same as if you were a pedestrian. In fact, I remember very clearly that being on a bicycle meant you were a pedestrian. There was no distinction between a bicyclist and a pedestrian. They were just pedestrians, and they consisted of anybody who wasn't in a car, anybody who wasn't in a motorized vehicle. If you weren't in a motorized vehicle, you were a pedestrian, meaning you peddled You used your feet in order to propel yourself. That's true when you're walking. It's true when you're on a bike. And, and the, f- the simple fact of the matter is, if you're not on a motorized vehicle, then you are incapable of reaching the speeds necessary to react in the way that vehicle traffic needs to when it's on the street that is built for roads or that is built for motorized vehicles, for cars and whatnot. So there was a certain logic to this, right? You know, and, and there's also the physical component. Turns out that a kid on a bike or even a grown adult on a bike is significantly uh, less structurally integral, so to speak, than anybody in the smallest of motorized vehicles. If you get in a crash and you're you're a pedestrian or you're on a bicycle and you get in a crash with a motorized vehicle, you are going to lose, right? The car might get damaged. It might get dented. You might scrape the paint you are going to break limbs and potentially cause great harm or loss of life to yourself, right? So that's just a little physical fact of reality that sh- that properly ought to inform your behavior when you're operating in the same physical space as a motorized vehicle. So th- that informed this kind of rule of thumb that no matter what you may do, and look, you know, as kids riding around on bikes, we were we rode where we wanted to ride. We were in the middle of the road. We were on the side of the road. You know, we were hopping curbs, you know, whatever the case may be. But when we saw that vehicle come, you know, it was kind of like when you would sit in the street and you would play kickball, you know, or stickball or whatever the case may be or toss the football around. You know, you might play in the street. But when that car came around the corner, you got out of the street, right? It was an event. Car! Somebody would shout from the side and everybody would go running, right? And you would stay off, up on the curb, out the way of the car until it passed, and then resume the game, right? In a similar sense, as a bicyclist, you had this respect for the fact that you are at a severe disadvantage against a vehicle. And it wasn't just self-preservation that was informing that. It was respect. Respect for the fact that first, that the purpose of the road is to facilitate the traffic of motor vehicles. That's why they exist. They don't exist for bicycles. They don't exist for pedestrians. And that's where we start getting into the politics of how this culture changed. Because now, in some places, in some municipalities, it's actually illegal for a bicycle to ride on the sidewalk, which seems crazy to me. Because the purpose of a sidewalk, just like the purpose of a road is to facilitate motorized traffic, the purpose of a sidewalk is to facilitate pedestrian traffic, of which I consider a bicycle part of. Because again, the root word there in pedestrian is pedal, using your feet in order to transport yourself, and that's what a bicycle is, right? So that's how we properly ought to regard it. The, the reason this change, as I see it, is primarily the part of the left's crusade even though you know that's probably a term they are not likely to apply to uh, many efforts but we'll go ahead and use it jihad let's go let's go with that one the left's jihad against motorized vehicles against cars against energy and and it's part of the green movement the reason the left likes bicycles is because bicycles aren't cars. Bicycles aren't motorized. Bicycles don't have these, these dangerous byproducts known as, known as CO2 and carbon gases, which, you know, technically isn't true because when you're bicycling, you breathe more heavily and turns out you exhale CO2. But I guess we're not counting that. Point being, the efforts when you look at an, an entity like the Met Council, the regional authority here in the Twin Cities – they are obsessed with minimizing with calming motorized vehicle traffic you know you see it in terms of the the installation of roundabouts everywhere in the metro you see it with the the redesign of boulevards to make them actually less accommodating to motorized traffic more accommodating to bicycles more accommodating to pedestrians because they think that if they actually de- if they design the world in such a way that it facilitates bikes, you are going to choose as a consumer to, to transport by bike rather than transport by car, which is ridiculous because the, the, the reason you want to go by car has very little to do with the types of roads that are available to you and has everything to do with the mode of transportation itself and the fact that it is conducive to what you want to accomplish in your day-to-day routine. But, you know, because the left thinks they know better than you about what's best for your life and what's best for society, they've engaged in this kind of jihad against motorized vehicles. And this shift in culture from the understanding that you and I had as children, wherein once you got up on that bike, you yielded to motorized traffic. And it was generally understood that the purpose of the road was to facilitate motorized traffic The the transition away from that to nonsensically regarding bicycles as equivalent to motorized vehicles, which they are not and never will be, and that's demonstrated by the fact that even bicyclists, once they get up on there, don't consistently behave as though they're a motorized vehicle. They choose which mode is most convenient to them when it's convenient to them to be regarded as a motorized vehicle then they act like one. When it's not convenient, such as when they come to an intersection and the light is red or whatever the case may be, then all of a sudden they decide, oh, I'm a pedestrian, now I get to do what I want, and they just buzz on through. You know, this tendency is informed by this this kind of nanny state desire to control motorized traffic as part of the green movement. So all of that is why rule number one here on the program is that any time you want to call in to complain about bikes, Feel free to do it. You'll go right to the top of the queue. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app Two ways to stream the program We are here 9 to 11 weeknights Appreciate you joining us Tonight we're doing something a little different Usually we do uh, the typical talk radio shtick We go through the headlines of the weekend The headlines of the day And give you our analysis of what it all means And uh, the direction the culture is generally going Which uh, tends to be downward (laughs) Nowadays tends to be in the wrong direction but tonight we're, we're going to uh, some basic fundamental stuff, right? We're, we're going to, we're trying to articulate some rules, some standing rules we have here on the program that kind of guide that analysis that we engage in on a regular basis from night to night. And uh, I, I came up with eight of them. I had seven going into tonight. I came up with an eighth just to keep a nice round number going since we got eight segments. And uh, the next one, th- this next one, number two, you know, we started off talking about my whole stance on bicycles in the first segment, which is kind of my standing joke rule that you can call in anytime and complain about bicycles. And there is actually some philosophical basis to that, and we discussed that in the first segment. But now I want to get to something that's much more foundational, much more fundamental, and that actually forms the the philosophical basis upon which our entire analysis is built here on the program. And that is something called the Law of Identity. And one way to phrase it is to say, A is A, or A equals A. And that may seem like a pretty straightforward and self-evident statement, but in point of fact, this is one of the most controversial notions in our public discourse. The idea that, that things are objectively true, that there is this thing called absolute truth, and that if you, if you identify something as having a certain nature, that is the nature that it has. And because it has that nature, it cannot have some other nature that is not that, right? This, is, this goes to the heart of the, one of the most obvious and current examples of this is the continuing debate we have with the transgender issue, right? And the concept of transgender rights and the idea uh, that, well, forget, about, forget the transgender rights thing. Just the concept of transgenderism. And this movement within the culture, this movement within the political discourse to beat you over the head and get you to accept the idea that a man through total whim, through, through the force of mental will, can transform himself into being a woman. Or even more absurdly, that he somehow was a woman, always has been a woman in spite of the fact that our objective means by which we determine male from female indicate that he is in fact a man. Right? You know, that's just one example for you in terms of the total rejection of this basic philosophical foundational idea, which is the law of identity, that things are what they are, that A is A. You know, the the way it's commonly said in, in common parlance is it is what it is, right? You've heard that. It is what it is. That is an extremely controversial thought, apparently, right? There are a number of people who will line up to tell you that it is not what it is, right? That it is something completely different. And the reason why this is important is because if we can't agree on something as fundamental as the concept of identity, you know, the idea that there is absolute truth, that there are certain things that are what they are, and because they are what they are, they cannot be something that they're not— If we can't agree on that, then we can't agree on anything. There is no basis upon which to craft any other – there is no basis upon which to communicate, right? I mean the the whole concept of communication is that you're conveying ideas. Well, you can't even have an idea if you don't first acknowledge that that the content of what you are saying actually is what it is. If it's not what it is, then what is the point of trying to convey it? Right What value are you transmitting through communication if you can't at first forward the notion that the content of your message actually has meaning right? It seems absurd you know when we, when we break it down like that, when you pause and you think through it and you analyze it like that, it, it could very quickly you can get to the point where you're like man that well that's just self-evident right like why do we even have to have this argument? Well, again, we could see time and time again and you look to the, 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 enti- the left's entire worldview and perspective on economics is a denial of this philosophical concept. They deny that A is A in economic terms. Uh, let's look at the minimum wage as an example, right? Or the concept, to, to make it bipartisan, President Donald Trump, who has made this distinction between free trade and fair trade. You know, he says, I believe in free trade, but I also believe in fair trade. By saying that, he is distinguishing between the two as if there is some objective difference between free trade and fair trade. And this is the exact same sentiment that underlies the notion of a minimum wage, that in order to be fair, we must properly impose a certain price. We must control the price of labor, which is what a wage is. We must control it in order to make it fair, right? Well, what that does is it ignores the law of identity as applied to politics. It ignores the fact that a wage is the the price of labor, the price of anything, is a signal of economic value. That is to say, the value which the person producing the thing, the the intersection of the value they perceive they have produced – with the value that the consumer perceives they are receiving in trade, right? So in other words, when you're dealing with an employer and an employee, whatever the employee is willing to work for and whatever the employer is willing to pay, that intersection, that point at which they shake hands and agree and form an employer-employee relationship, that is the price of that labor. And it is what it is. If, if the employer could get away with paying less, of course he would if the employee could get away with being paid more of course they would it's the intersection of the two interests that arrives at a at a calculation and granted they are applying a subjective value when they make this calculation right it's what's it worth to you versus what's it worth to me and that's totally subjective but the the intersection of those two interests results in an objective measure, which is price, right? It's whatever the wage is. And that objective measure becomes an accurate measure of the subjective value of the employer and the employee. And so when you arbitrarily decide, well, we're going to just, we're going to move, let's say the wage is set at $12 an hour, we're going to arbitrarily move it to 15, right? Well, what you're saying is that A is no longer A, that the actual objective value of the intersection of the employer and the employee's perception of, of the, the value that they're exchanging in their employment relationship, that that isn't actually what it is, that we know better as a public entity, you know, as a legislature, as a city council, whatever the case may be. We know better than the two people involved in the trade what the actual value of that trade is, which is absurd, Because how can a third party, how can somebody who's not involved in the transaction have any sense whatsoever of the subjective values that go into determining price? They can't. And again, all of this, this whole analysis rests upon the basic idea that A is A, that things are what they are, the law of identity. It is fundamental to our analysis of literally everything, right? You can't get very far in life by denying that things are what they are. It pretty much is it's a significant pillar, I would say a foundational philosophical peer, pillar to defining maturity, right? This is this is what separates boys from men, children from grown-ups, the immature from the mature. Your capacity to look at the world and determine that yes, in fact, that is what it is and I have to live my life accordingly is what separates you from a child who just Dreams and imagines and wishes, right? That's childish behavior. And yet, at least, at least one half of our electorate is engaged in that childlike wishing behavior when it comes to public policy and the ways in which they interact with the culture. That is horrifying. And it is destructive to our civilization because civilization is a direct byproduct of a culture that embraces the facts of reality and lives their lives accordingly. So this is important stuff, folks, and it's why this is standing rule number two here on the program. A is A, the law of identity. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream the program. program's produced by Brad Omlin. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights and appreciate you joining us this evening. Doing something a little bit different tonight uh, rather than our usual typical analysis of the day's headlines. In this case, being a Monday night, the weekend's headlines. We're uh, going through some basic rules, what I call the standing rules of the program. And uh, these are just some some general concepts, general principles that I apply to my nightly analysis of those headlines that we typically bring you on a night-to-night basis. And uh, we've gone through a couple of them so far. The first one is kind of my, my joke standing rule that anytime you want to call in and complain about bicyclists, you go right to the top of the queue, and uh, I explained that at some length. Actually, it's it's a little bit more meaty of a philosophical point than you might imagine at first glance. Uh, and then I talked in the second segment about the law of identity: A is A, or you know, as you've more commonly heard it, it is what it is. Right? This is a very important concept that kind of lays the foundation for. All of the other rules we're going to talk about tonight, and all of the analysis that I engage in on a nightly basis. It's very important, you know, if you want to have, if you want to do anything whatsoever, if you want to exist in the realm of reality, it's important to acknowledge that things are what they are, right? That things have a nature, that they have an identity, and that when something is something, then it is not something else. It is not a thing that it is not, right? That's kind of an important concept. And yet, As self-evident and obvious as it may seem at first glance, it's something that's rejected fairly commonly by the culture in which we find ourselves. So moving on to standing rule for closing argument number three, and this is where we get into these next few rules are aimed very directly at the left and a critique of the political left and the cultural left in this country. Rule number three is the left doesn't get to claim the scientific high ground. Because their entire platform is a declaration of war against reality. And where this comes from is, first and foremost, the, the posture, and I would say kind of the arrogance and the way in which the left looks down their nose at those of us on the right side of the political spectrum With this sense of sort of scientific superiority, they lay claim to science as if the science on any given question is on their side. And as if we are a bunch of, you know, we're either engaged in some sort of religious inquisition against scientific truth or we're slack-jawed yokels who deny that the world is is round and we think that everything's flat and we think that the the sun uh, goes around the earth instead of the other way around. And, you know, this is the, the the way in which they regard us. Science is on their side and we're until denial of science. In fact, that very term denial is applied to the right by the left on a regular basis, specifically when it comes to the question of climate change. And this is kind of their trump card which unfortunately that term is always going to be a pun from this day forward given the identity of our current president but they they look they point to climate change as their case study their object lesson in, in demonstrating this point that science is on their side and that the right is engaged in a denial of climate change which is kind of weird on a couple of different levels first of all this term climate change What does that even mean? Like, is there anybody out there, just in, in, in terms of strict application of language, is there anyone out there in the world who is actually in denial of the fact that the climate changes? Just generally. Is there anybody out there that denies that the climate, in fact, changes? Is there anybody out there, one person, who denies that the climate is currently in the midst of a change? I, I don't think this is a point that's actually under dispute, right? So the very notion of climate change deniers is a nonsense phrase in and of itself. Now, in response to that, a intelligent leftist, a pithy leftist might, be, might say, well, you know, you're being coy. In point of fact, Walter, obviously, when we talk about climate change denial, we're talking about the right's Tendency to deny the scientific consensus, which establishes that anthropogenic, man made global warming is resulting in damaging changes to the climate going forward and something must be done about it. Well, okay, let's examine that notion. First of all, let's start with the concept of scientific consensus, right? Is that an actual thing? Scientific consensus? I was unaware, you know, when I go back to my high school days and we were taught the basics about the scientific method and how it works, I don't recall at any point there being a a part of the study that indicated that consensus or some sort of democratic process or democratic vote resulted in the establishment of truth. What I do recall is that the way the scientific method works is that you make observations about the physical world, you form a hypothesis that you believe explains what it is that you're seeing, You develop ways to test that hypothesis through experimentation. You take your findings and it either confirms your hypothesis and potentially moves it forward to the the status of a theory after you have other scientists engage in the same style or the, the same type of experimentation to come to the same findings and that's it. That's the process in total. Very rarely do you ever reach the point where your idea moves to an establishment of something that we would consider to be a scientific law, meaning this is the way it is definitively. There's no arguing it. And and we have, in truth, reached an actual consensus, if you want to use that word, right? Like the law of gravity, that's established, right? That's that's a thing that's definitely true. It takes us back to that notion of A is A, right? Right. Very few scientific ideas ever reach that level of certainty. And in fact, some degree of uncertainty and acknowledging the reality that there is always a certain degree of uncertainty is a critical part of an actual scientific process. So when you come at me or when you come at us with this notion of scientific consensus, it signals to me that you're not actually talking about science, right? You're basically just trying to make a felicious argument from authority or an argument from the majority and trying to argue that because there are a lot of people, people out there who are willing to say something, that that makes it true, which is an explicitly and objectively unscientific statement, right? Now, the, the other interesting thing about climate change in particular and this notion that it is backed up by the, – the left's view of anthropogenic climate change is backed up by, quote, science – and the rights denial of climate change uh, is is in somehow at odds with established science. It's an interesting claim, given a couple of facts. Fact number one: the source of the 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 quote unquote science that backs up anthropogenic global warming as not just the fact that it happens, which again I don't think there are a lot of people who disagree with the with the idea that some degree of human cause warming takes place, but the idea that it presents this kind of catastrophic threat to human civilization or to the existence, the continued survival of the planet itself, right? That idea is backed up by groups that are primarily either, either directly funded by government Or heavily subsidized by government, which is an interesting thing to highlight when you take into consideration that one of the major critiques of people like Dr. Richard Lindzen, a former professor at MIT who has been a contrarian on the anthropogenic global warming issue or climate change issue, one of the critiques about him or anybody who dares to disagree with the quote-unquote consensus on this topic Is that, oh, they're just they're funded by the right or they're funded by the oil companies or whatever the case may be. The implication being that if you have an economic interest in viewing the issue a certain way, then that's going to cloud your judgment, which is interesting because what is the economic interest of somebody who's funded by government? Oh, it seems pretty clear, right? Their economic interest is the furtherance of government power and the continuance and indeed expansion of government funding. Well, how are you going to justify that unless there is some crisis which motivates that cause? See? So this is an argument that has to go both ways. If you're going to argue that Lindzen and others who dissent from the quote-unquote consensus are informed by their economic interest, then the same can be said of those of you getting your money from government, right? This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, twincitiesnewstalk.com, 1035 FM. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. So happy that you're joining the program tonight. We are here nine to 11 weeknights. Typically, we do uh, what you expect from this type of program, which is analyze your headlines, analyze the news. What I want to do tonight is go into a little bit more detail, spend a little more time examining the principles and values that we apply to that analysis here on the program here on Closing Argument. And I've kind of distilled those into eight standing rules. And this is not by no means a definitive list. It's entirely possible that I will at some point expand it. In fact, I... Imagine, I assume that I will. It'll be an ongoing project uh, as the show progresses. But to date, you know, the, this is kind of the distilled, frozen form of the, the principles and the philosophical ideas that I apply to my analysis of the news. And uh, I'm sharing it with you and going through it and kind of explaining it a little bit so that we can kind of get on the same page. You can at least understand where it is that I'm coming from from night to night. And, you know, you don't have to agree with it, but I guarantee you it'll be provocative. It'll be something that perhaps you've never heard before and hopefully we'll get something out of. So without further ado, first, let's just review where we've been so far. We've gone through my whole bicyclist thing. We won't spend any more time on that. This notion of A is A. That's rule number two. The law of identity, which is the most important of these rules, because it's the foundation upon which literally everything else is built. You can't get very far in life if you're not willing to pause and acknowledge the fact that things are what they are and they are not what they are not. Right. And if something is a certain has a certain nature, then it cannot at the same time have a different nature, which is not that the not the nature that it has. And when you start applying the language in that way and using language in that way, it starts to sound almost like, a, like some sort of riddle or some sort of mental trick because it's like, well, isn't that obvious? Isn't it obvious that A is A? Isn't it obvious that things are what they are? Well, you would think so, but apparently it's not because much of our public discourse, particularly from the political left and unfortunately too much now on the political right as well, denies this fact, denies the fact that things are what they are and they work the way that they work. And so that's a very important principle. The, the third rule that we discussed in the last segment was that the left doesn't get to claim the scientific high ground because their entire platform is a declaration of war against reality. And that flows naturally from the law of identity, the notion that A is A. Much of what the left pursues in both the culture and the realm of politics, public policy – is in denial of what is actually true. And so it's, it's ironic because they lay claim to this notion uh, or, or lay claim to the entire concept of science. They, they, they posture as if science is on their side and as if those of us to the right of center are somehow these the sort of um, Neanderthalic deniers of reality. The inverse is true. It is the left that denies reality on a routine basis And that's something that we explore from night to night here as we go through our headlines. The next rule, standing rule here on the program that I want to uh, disclose and explain a little bit and explore, rule number four, the left doesn't get to claim the high ground of compassion because their entire platform undermines the means by which individuals achieve happiness. Now, like the, the scientific high ground that the left tries to claim, they, they, they like to pretend and posture as if they exclusively lay claim to the realm of compassion. They are the ones who feel. They are the ones who have heart. They are the ones who understand and empathize and care about other people. And, you know, those of us on the right, we're just cold and inhuman and calculating and, you know, like androids or something. You know, we don't, we don't have any human feelings. We don't relate to people on a human level. You know, we're just cold, robotic-like figures in the public discourse that need to be opposed for that reason alone. Because, uh, you know, if we had our way in public policy, by God, we'd live in a world of, of nothing but gray and sharp angles, right? That's the, the image that the left likes to paint of the right. In point of fact, you cannot get... You, you cannot get to a place in life where it is possible to have compassion and to express compassion unless you conform your society and, in particular, your government to the ideas that are on the political right. And in order to understand that, we have to go back. We have to do, go to the bedrock of our philosophical worldview, right, and ask this question what is, how, how does one determine or how does one pursue their happiness, right? And, and in order to answer that, you have to go back even further to what is a value? What is a value in the context of human life? And what Ayn Rand had to say on this question, which I think is 100% accurate, is that a value is that which you act to obtain or to keep. So for instance, when you get up in the morning and you go to work, that is because you value the compensation that you receive as a response. You you may also value the sense of accomplishment that you gain in engaging whatever your occupation is. Hopefully that's the case. Hopefully you're not going to a, to a job that you hate and that you get no sort of sense of satisfaction or achievement from. But primarily the reason why you get up again and again and again, day after day, Monday through Friday, or whatever your schedule calls for, is because you value the money that you receive in exchange for your... Uh, the, the labor that you provide, and you also value all, all of the tangential things that come along with it, your house, <laughs> the groceries, the ability to put fuel in your car, the ability to go on a vacation now and then, what have you. The, there are other ways you know, outside of, of economics, values that we pursue in our personal lives, our families, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our children, our relationships with the community around us, right? The the ways in which we engage with other people, the entertainment that we pursue, you know, all of these things are values. Now, acknowledging that, the question becomes of value to whom, right? It, and, and without going through the whole breakdown of the philosophical justification for this, let's just say – that the concept of value necessitates that it be of value to an individual person. You are the one who determines what is of value to you. Nobody else can dictate that to you. Nobody can tell you what you value. You just know what you value, right? You You are the owner of your relationship with your wife, your children. You are the one who determines that you want to work in this occupation for this reason and that. That is not something that can be dictated for you. So that leads us to, this, to the question of in what condition must we exist and proceed in order to be able to pursue our values and therefore pursue our happiness? And the answer to that, without exception, and it should be without controversy, is liberty. You have to be free. By virtue of the fact that nobody, can, nobody else can tell you what your values are, you must be at liberty to pursue your values. Otherwise, you cannot. It is not possible for you to pursue your values if you are not in control of your life. That should go without saying, right? Pretty clear. And yet, what is the political left? If not, A movement against this very concept of liberty, this very concept of being, of of having full ownership of your life and being able to pursue your values as you define them in order to, in in pursuit of your happiness as it emerges from your heart, your mind, your life. The left is 100% opposed to that in concept. Fundamentally, they are opposed to it. They don't want you deciding what's of value to you. You know, they don't want you in control of your life, your business, your occupation, your relationships, your speech. They don't want you in control of any of that. Now they pretend that they do. They pretend that they're stewards of liberty, but only in very specific circumstances, in sort of in